Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at a passage in that chapter, and these brothers have some Bibles so that you can follow along as we do. As they make their way to the back, if you need a Bible, just get their attention, and they'll get one of those Bibles to you. And it is marked at Matthew 5, so you won't have to fumble around to find that. And you can keep that Bible as our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. If you were writing a novel about God coming to earth and living among people, what would God be like in your novel? We would undoubtedly portray him as a king or super superhero. Whenever there was any kind of problem, he'd come to save the day and undoubtedly in spectacular fashion. And if anyone had the audacity or the stupidity to oppose him, he'd use his superpowers to crush them summarily. Our God come down to earth would not really be down to earth at all. He'd be infinitely smarter and more powerful than us, and he'd demonstrate that superiority, superiority regularly as he interacted with us. We come to love him for his power and knowledge and his willingness to use it on our behalf. The God of our imagination would certainly not be the one who allows anyone to push him around. But God has come down to earth in Jesus Christ. But he did not behave in the ways that we would think. His first followers, in fact, were confused and frustrated by this. After all, they and their people, by the time that Jesus came, had been oppressed by the Roman Empire for centuries. And he was claiming to be the one that the first part of the Bible, what we call the Old Testament, had predicted would come. And he would establish a kingdom with him as the king and those who acknowledge him as part of that kingdom. And so their desire for power and position was constant and it's seen in the words that they spoke to Jesus on one occasion. The Bible tells us the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, let's just stop there for a moment. You're writing your novel about God come to earth. What would he be like? These guys say, who's the greatest in the kingdom that you're the king of? What would you expect that he would say? And here's what Jesus said. He called a little child to him. He placed the child among them, and he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus goes on and says, Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Still later, after they had spent a few years with God on earth, Jesus Christ, His first followers asked Jesus, just before he ascended back to heaven, this question. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they were bent on this idea of him showing his power and showing his might by destroying his enemies, the way we would write the novel of God Come to Earth. One of those first 12 followers of Jesus was named Simon. He was known as Simon the Zealot. And that's because he was part of a political party called the Zealots, who were desperately wanting to overthrow the hated Romans, even resorting to assassinations of government officials. And the whole bunch of Jesus' first followers were quite like us 
in their view of heroism and those we look up to. Our view of heroes and those we look up to is of those who take what is theirs and use their power to destroy those who oppose them. But hear this, dear friends. Jesus knew that our biggest problem is not a lack of power, but a lack of character. So as God come to earth, while on occasion he indeed displayed his power by miracles, he primarily demonstrated his superiority not by might or power, but by an ethical character that was unlike anything anyone had ever seen or could imagine. And in this most famous of sermons, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching on the character qualities of those who would be his followers. And he says in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, unless your righteousness surpasses that of, he says, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, that is the religious leaders, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the religious leaders, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So contrary to what our novel about God coming to earth would look like, when God did in fact come to earth, he said things like we read beginning in verse 38 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asked you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And if you read those words along with me, you're saying to yourself, yikes. How can I do that? How can I be a follower of Jesus? We need his help desperately, don't we? Let's ask him to help us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can look and examine these words of the Lord Jesus. God come to earth. Help us to do so with ready minds to hear and open hearts to conform to the, your character revealed therein. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. To show the character of God, and therefore the character that we're supposed to have, and how that character of God differs from what we naturally are, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives six what we call antitheses between what the people had heard on the one hand and what is true on the other hand, beginning in verse 21. Jesus says six times between verses 21 and 43, some variation of, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And if you've been with us over the last several weeks as we've looked at this, you've seen that he said that. You've heard it said, but I say to you, regarding things like anger. You have heard it said regarding anger. This is the way it works, but I say to you. And he said that regarding things like lust and commitment and marriage and honesty. And now in the verses we just read, Jesus is speaking of the character of God shown in the mercy of God through his followers. And so we've inserted, as we do each week, an outline in your program. If you don't have that out already, I encourage you to take that out. As we look at these verses together, the first point I want you to see is that Christians value mercy over judgment. Christians value mercy over 
over judgment. Verse 38 again. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now when Jesus says, you have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, he's actually quoting exactly what the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, said. For example, in Exodus chapter 21, second book of your Bible, it says this, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And the same command is found in two other places in the Old Testament, in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Now, it's extremely important for us to know that for Exodus 21, that's on the screen for you, and these other passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that Jesus is quoting, it's important to know the context of all of those is the court system in the nation of Israel. It's a legal context. This was instruction for judges in court. And it was instruction for them in order to establish standards for them to mete out justice, but also to do a second thing, to restrain revenge. And those eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth passages are called the lex talionis. That is Latin for the law of retaliation. And it was designed to ensure that the punishment would fit the crime so that a judge was not free to inflict arbitrary and excessive sentences. This law of retaliation, the lex talionis, was a very good thing because it capped damages that could be awarded when someone was wronged. Without such limits on punitive damages, you have things like that recorded in the first chapters of the Bible. Fourth chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, says this of someone named Lamech. Lamech said, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. And he bragged that if Cain is avenged seven times, Lamech 77 times. So you mess with me and you're going to get it 77 times worse than you gave it. So this principle of lex talionis is so important that without it, there are many ill effects in a society. The need for at least some parameters around the punitive damages that can be recovered is what gives rise to what we call in our day the need for tort reform, which without it has doctors, as an example, practicing what's called defensive medicine. That is, medical doctors and the tendency to over-treat a patient because they fear that if they're sued for malpractice, they're going to have to be able to show that they ran every conceivable test and performed every possible procedure. And so they're practicing defensive medicine because there are very few and in some places no limits on what can be exacted. So this law placed a limit on damages. If you lose an eye, you're not going to get more than an eye in, in return. Now in practice, as you might imagine, you did not have someone who had purposely or accidentally knocked out the eye of another saying, All right, I'm guilty. I knocked out your eye. Here you go. Or you didn't have judges ordering the removal of eyes or limbs as a reward to an injured party. No, in practice, the way it was carried out was to come to an agreement about monetary compensation. And so this law in the first part of your Bible, the the Old Testament, would cover things like violations of property rights or personal injuries. It governed penalties for and compensation for manslaughter. 
And so here's an example in Exodus 22. If the stolen animal is found alive in his possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, he must pay back double. Now, do you see what's happening here? If a neighbor steals an ox or a sheep, he has to pay back two ox or sheep. One to replace the one that was stolen, and then adding one of his own. Now notice, so that he loses precisely what his neighbor would have lost. That's the law of retaliation. And then you see it as well with regard to perjury in the courts in Deuteronomy chapter 19 where it says, if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, then do to him as he intended to do to his brother. So it was good and necessary to have this law, the principle from from which made for justice to be done and revenge to be restrained. So with all of that, with all that background, then why is Jesus seemingly knocking this? You've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say to you. Why wouldn't Jesus just say, it was given in the Old Testament, you're quoting it word for word, it's a good thing, it did all of these wonderful things for society, but he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and seemingly then corrects this good law. Why does he do that? Here's why. It's because what was intended for the law courts had by the time of Jesus become a matter of personal relationships. The religious leaders had extended it beyond the legal system to personal interactions, and as they had done with God's commands about murder and adultery and divorce and taking of oaths, they had perverted it so that its original purpose was defeated. They taught that the lex talionis justified personal revenge, and that the offended party should exact the maximum punishment from an offender. And to that, Jesus' response is in verse 39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Jesus is saying that this law that's applicable and good in court is not so in personal relationships. Rather than retaliation, Jesus says, my followers will be willing to accept Injustice without revenge. (laughs) Man. And you want to be a Christian. My followers will be willing to accept injustice without revenge. Do you all see at the top of the outline the title of this message? I don't get mad. I get what? Yeah. And that's what we think and that's what we extol. But Jesus says, that's not what my followers do. It's hard. It's exactly the kind of mind-blowing, high ethical teaching we should expect from God when he walks the earth. Teaching that's beyond us and beyond our sinful ability to carry out. Standards that require something and someone outside of us to make us able to live in the way that God requires. Friends, we need God's help and God's spirit and God's word and God's people to live as he requires, do we not? Now, when Jesus said in verse 39, do not resist, that word resist means to stand against, to oppose. 
And we see the same word used in, in a number of contexts in the New Testament. Let me just give you some of those quickly so we have an idea of what Jesus is saying when he says, do not resist an evil person. It's used in Romans 9, where the question is asked rhetorically, who resists God's will? Same word. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we are told that people outside of God oppose, that word oppose is the same one used in Matthew 5.39, men oppose the truth. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, it speaks of one named Alexander who opposed the Apostle Paul in his ministry. He says, Alexander strongly opposed our message. Same word there. And Christians are told in this famous passage in Ephesians chapter 6, where we have the armor of God taught to us. And we're told in verse 13 there, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand, resist. And the NIV translates that word as stand your ground in this, in this battle for turf, as it were. But when Jesus says then, do not resist, so there are times, obviously, to resist. And this is the way the word oppose and resist is used in the Bible. But when Jesus says in verse 39 of Matthew 5, do not resist, he qualifies what he's talking about. Notice what he says in verse 39. He says, do not resist an evil person. He does not say, do not resist the devil. He does not say, do not resist, as we will see, evil in general. If he were to say, do not resist the devil, that would contradict the Bible. We have a number of passages that tell us to do that very thing. 1 Peter 5, resist the devil, standing firm in the faith. And likewise, James chapter 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Jesus does not say, do not resist the devil, and he does not say, do not resist evil in general. In fact, in the Bible, we see that happening as well. Something evil has happened and we find God's people opposed to it, standing against it, resisting it. One example of that is the Apostle Paul who resisted a brother in the Lord, Peter, for wrong that he had done. Galatians chapter 2 says this, I, Paul, opposed, same word, I resisted Peter to his face. So there are indeed times to come to the defense and to resist, oppose something that is wrong. Now please hear this, friends then when am I supposed to do that? When is it okay for me to do that and I don't violate what Jesus says in Matthew 5? There are times for us to come to the defense, resist, oppose something that's wrong. But we are to do that when it is for the sake of others. We're to do that when it is for the sake of others. Christians are commanded throughout Scripture to look out for those who are vulnerable, and to come to their aid. And so it is always right for a Christian to resist evil and its effects upon other, on other people. And so we see this principle calling us to aid those who are vulnerable in things like helping those who are orphaned. Again, Exodus 22, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. And in your New Testament, James chapter 1, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, look after orphans and widows in their distress. So defense, and especially defense of others, is commended. It's not condemned in the Bible. And God has given us, in fact, government for protection, protection defending us against evil. 
Romans chapter 13 says this of God-instituted government. Whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Now, when it says whoever rebels, same word as in Matthew 5.39, whoever resists the one who is in authority is resisting what God has instituted. The one in authority is God's servant for your good, and notice, does not bear the sword for no reason. And you know what they use the sword for? To kill people as punishment for killing other people. So contrary to what some have taught in the history of the church, Jesus is not teaching pacifism in the Sermon on the Mount. God has given government to defend life, and that's one of its primary responsibilities. But the government should only engage in defense when it goes to war, not offense. A war that is engaged in by a government that is informed by Christian thought will be a war that is a just war, a war that is in defense of others and in carrying out the God-given responsibility of government. This principle of defense in our military was underscored by the change of name for the section of government that oversees the military. It used to be called, did you know, the Department of War. And the Department of War was overseen by the Secretary of, of War, And now it is better called the Department of Defense, led by the Secretary of Defense. A government informed by Christian principles will be about the business of defending its citizens, and that defense may mean the punishment, even the killing of the criminal, the Bible says. Years ago, I saw the famous defense attorney, Jerry Spence, debating the issue of capital punishment. He was arguing against the death penalty, And several times he said to his opponent, quote, I'm sorry you feel the need to kill. Now, it was a very clever tactic because it shifted the ground of the debate away from capital punishment being a matter of justice to it being a matter of personal revenge. And for us as Christians, it does highlight what Jesus is focusing on in this passage. We should never be about personal revenge. Rather, when we support punishment... And when we personally inflict punishment, it should always be done for the benefit of others, not ourselves. And friends, we should consciously consider our reasons for our response in order to determine whether it's about us or about others. Now, probably all kinds of thoughts going through your minds. Well, what about this and what about that? So let's take at least one of those. What about self-defense, so-called self-defense? Here, I'm making the case that when we engage in defense, it's on behalf of others, but then we have this concept of self-defense. What what about that? Well, that needs to be seen. Self-defense, what we call self-defense, needs to be seen as really others' defense. Even defense of the the offender. You're sitting there going, dude, this is just, this is way beyond... This is just too crazy for me. I can't think that way. But if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, then you have to begin to think like Jesus says we're to think. So Jesus says we don't retaliate. We don't engage in personal revenge. But this idea that we protect others is something that he calls us to. And in protecting ourselves, often we are protecting others in that very thing. For an example, 
someone comes into my home to attack my family, I have a responsibility to protect them. And, in fact, if someone comes into my home and attacks me and I'm all by myself and my family's not there, if I'm gone, they're going to be in a lot of trouble. They don't realize that, but you guys would be in a lot of trouble if I was gone. All right? Now, Kim would be a millionaire because I've got a life insurance policy, but nevertheless, you would miss me if I'm, if I'm gone. And so if you own a gun to protect your family... It should be primarily about protecting your family and even protecting society, but not about you. If an intruder comes into your home and you or others are there who are living in that house, you have a responsibility to protect them, even if you're alone, even then. It's a protection for others, hear this, it's a protection for others that intruders not be able to maraud in a neighborhood and loot and terrorize. And in fact, by stopping the criminal at your house, you may well be helping the elderly widow next door who is all by herself. But you, Jesus is saying, you've got to think of it that way. Yes, we resist. Yes, we engage in what we call self-defense. But our attitude is never to be that of revenge. Our attitude is to be defense of others. We defend when it's defending others. Now, I've talked about somebody breaking in and you might have to shoot them and all that ugly stuff. But let's get more to where we live and what's more likely to have already happened this morning and perhaps this afternoon for many of us. When we defend ourselves, not by somebody intruding into our home, but by a comment that someone made that we don't like about us. You're not going to say that about me. You say that about me, and you're going to get it worse than you gave it. And, and I'm going to confess to you that this is one of the great struggles that I have personally. When I sense that someone insults me personally, I shoot back quickly. And you don't want to be there when that happens. So don't mess with me. But in all seriousness, in my, in my doing that, it violates what Jesus says here. And when you do that, it violates what Jesus says here. How many times have, have we heard a criminal say something like, you know, I killed him because he disrespected me? You heard that? That's a phrase he did. I mean, respect for me is paramount in, in our culture. And if you violate this respect for me standard, then you get what's coming to you. My approach needs to be sanctified. I need sanctification in this area. So that when someone assaults me, I'm able to brush that off and respond as we're going to see the way Jesus did. I have to grow in that. At the same time, if someone insults others, if someone insults one of you in my presence, if someone insults God's church, ah, you really don't want to be there then. If someone insults our youth group, and let, let me just say publicly, we have one of the best youth groups around. I just want you all to know that. We have one of the best youth groups around. And I am thrilled that my daughters have had the privilege to go through this youth group led by this youth group leadership 
in this church. And if someone disrespects them, you, or disrespects them, I have a responsibility to resist that, to oppose that, to stand against that. That's in keeping with what the Bible teaches. What we need to practice, friends, is something that I call resisting love. We're expressing love when we resist. We resist when it's a matter of love. We resist out of love, not out of vengeance. So just think then this way, if you can. This is one way, one standard, one practical way for you to think about when you have crossed the line from what the Bible legitimately tells us to do in protecting other people and their reputations and their physical safety and so on to then violating what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5.39 and becoming personally vengeful. Try to imagine if this were said or if this were done only affecting me. Now, the truth of the matter is that's almost never the case. And it's hard for me to even imagine a case like that because, as I've said, when something happens to one of us, we're connected to other people. We're connected to other people in society, in our homes, in our churches. And so in order to protect them, there are times then where we need to protect ourselves. But it's about protecting them. But if you could theoretically just imagine to yourself, if this was only me and only affected me, then how would I react? And do you know how Jesus reacted? Do you remember when Jesus was insulted? Do you remember when Jesus was physically assaulted? Here's what the Bible tells us. Matthew 26, Jesus remained silent. He didn't do what Ken does. He didn't shoot back with his mouth. The Bible says they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus did all of this as an example to us. 1 Peter 2, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And Peter goes on to say, and he did this leaving us an example. So Christians value mercy over judgment. And we're, just, we're going to have to move on. But you can see how that principle would govern so many aspects of our thoughts and our words, can't you, friends? In the ways we talk about people, in the kind of antipathy, sometimes bordering on hatred that we express toward people that we don't like, in our political debates. Christians value mercy over judgment. And Jesus gives four illustrations of how this plays out in our personal relationships. And so I say in your outline, we not only value mercy over judgment, Christians value restraint over retaliation. Restraint over retaliation. And I say in your outline, we're restrained, or to be restrained in a couple of ways. One is when we are insulted. We're restrained when insulted. Second part of verse 39, Jesus says this, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So all of us have heard this, turn the other cheek. Principle. This is where it comes from. This is Jesus. Now, why does Jesus single out the right cheek? Here's why. Because most people are right-handed. And if you get slapped on your right cheek, it means that someone has given you a backhand. 
And what Jesus is talking about here is a, is a high insult in his day and in our day as well. That someone would with their right hand then strike you on the right cheek with the back of their hand. It was a serious insult in his day as it is in ours. We say things like, he gave me the back of his hand to refer to an insult. And Jesus says, you've been insulted. You've been insulted in a way that our culture, the culture that he was in, and ours as well, recognizes as indeed a high insult. Jesus says, if it's a personal insult to you, you have a higher standard to which you are striving. And giving the other cheek shows that you value something more than physical life and safety. That spiritual values are more important to you than physical. Now again, all the stuff I said earlier, if someone's attacking you, self-defense needs to be seen as others' defense, resisting in love, all of that. But Jesus is trying to show here that you should not be about yourself and your own personal rights and your own personal vengeance. When you are insulted, you're restrained. And then when not only you're insulted, but when you are persecuted, I say secondly in your outline, we are restrained when persecuted. Because verse 40 says this, And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Well, in that day, most people would have two garments. They would have an inner and an outer garment. And if they sued you to take, they would often sue you to take the clothes off your back, but they could only take the inner garment. By law, by Old Testament law, they had to leave you the outer garment. We'll see that verse in just a moment. But Jesus is saying if they take the one, even give them the one they're not even entitled to, to show that you care more about the spiritual than, than the physical. So he says if someone takes your, your shirt, that's the NIV's uh, contemporizing this inner garment versus outer garment. If they take your shirt, give them your outer coat as well. So we sometimes say when someone... His business has gone bankrupt. He lost his what? He lost his shirt. So this is, and this is a court proceeding. Someone has filed a lawsuit. It's probably a reference to Christians being harassed even into the court system. And the Old Testament law said in Deuteronomy 24 that when you go to court, you're to return, if you, if you take someone's outer garment, their cloak, it's to be returned by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. It's what kept them warm. And the law forbade that being taken from them. But Jesus says, give them that as well. And we're going to move on. But friends, can you sense your heart being melted toward Christ and the mercy of Christ that he calls us to rather than the what's in it for me standing for my rights, defending my position that we all naturally have. Christians value mercy over judgment and restraint over retaliation. Lastly, in your outline, generosity over requirement. Generosity over requirement. That is, we value being generous over what is minimally required of us. We'll go above and beyond what's minimally required of us. And Jesus gives a couple of ways and illustrations of how that's demonstrated. 
In verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, how could somebody force me to go a mile? (laughs) Well, here's how. In the Roman Empire, believe it or not, soldiers were allowed to make citizens carry their stuff. So a soldier could come to you, and, and, and if you're Jewish, you hate the Roman Empire and the soldiers who are occupiers and have been for centuries, but they're allowed to tell you, carry this for me. And Jesus is saying when that is is forced upon you, when you're conscripted into the service of someone else, and in this case, someone you despise, go the extra, that's where we get to go the extra mile. And again, you're demonstrating that it's not about me. It's about God first. And because it's about God first, it's about you as well. And I'm trying to demonstrate to you in my selfless service to you, even though you're mistreating me, that there is something higher than me and something higher than my own rights to which I aspire and to which I am trying to point you. Generous with our service in your outline. And then secondly and lastly, generous with our money. Oh, pastor, man, you have gone to meddling now. But verse 42, give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, some of you have the dilemma in your extended family that I've had for years. I've got extended family who are regularly getting themselves into difficulty and then coming and saying, help me out of this. And, and I, I, I would say I've been through it all. I don't know about all, but I've been through about all. And I think I've seen just about it all. Sometimes it involves little children. You know, you'll have people who spend their money on drink or on drugs or whatever it is. They've got little children, and then they come and say, I need food for the baby. Puts you in a tough spot, doesn't it? And, and I've had to make choices, hard choices about this. And what has guided me in this is, are these principles. And out of these principles, I have summarized a working definition of love that I've shared with you before because I'm called to love my, my brothers, my sisters, my extended family. I'm called to love, we're going to see next week, love your enemies. Don't you guys be glad when we're done with Matthew 5? Love your enemies. But here's this working definition of love. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. And so in keeping with Jesus' principle, I have to be willing with an open hand and an open heart to help anyone that I can help. But I also have to be wise in understanding what helps and what hinders. I cannot in that help be an enabler. Because that's, now hear this, not because, you know, otherwise that'll just trash me and that'll impinge upon me, because remember, it ain't about me. The reason I can't be an enabler is because that's not good for you. Love is doing what's in the best interest of you. And I'll give. And so I used to say to my nephew, I used to say, I will help you 
whenever I can and whenever you are moving in the right direction. I will help you move in the right direction. But I will not enable you to go in the wrong direction. That's doing, as best I can, what's in their best interest. With that, then, I have a take-home truth for you in your outline. Christians do not take more than we must. And we give more than is required. We don't take more than we must when someone wrongs us. And we are willing to give more than is required when it is asked of us. Next week, we will conclude Matthew chapter 5, looking at loving your enemies. Now, in order for us to do this, dear friends, we need, as I said at the beginning, the power of God's Spirit, His Word, His people. You can't do this. I can't do this. We need the power of God. We need the power of the gospel. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives. And even then, you will not do this perfectly. Lord knows I don't do it perfectly. So if this is Jesus' standard, and it is, and we can't soften his standard or water it down, if that's his standard, then how can I ever stand before God? Thanks be to God, Jesus has lived the life that you're supposed to live. He came to earth to live the way you're supposed to live. And when you come to him believing in who he is and what he did, his perfect life is applied to you. And you have the perfect righteousness of Christ now as a result of becoming a Christian. So as we end this message, I want to give you opportunity to come to Christ and have his righteousness placed upon you. Now, how do you do that? You realize that you are a sinner. And you recognize that Christ died for your sin, but his death for your sin was only acceptable to God the Father because he had first lived the life you should have lived. He lived and died for you. And then you repent of your sin. Lord, I'm going to follow you. I know I'll do this imperfectly, but I want to emulate your character in the way I interact with others. You repent of your sin. I'm going to follow you with my life, and you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow in just a moment. And when we do, you say from your heart to God, Oh, Lord, I've been shown the depth of my sin from my heart. And I know that there is no way that I can attain your standard, but I thank you that Jesus has. I ask you to forgive me and apply his righteous life to me. And I give my life to you. Let's bow together. Father, thank you again for these penetrating, convicting words. We should expect nothing other than that from the God of the universe who knows exactly what we need, who has spoken the word that we have in the pages of Holy Scripture, and who knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts. You know just what to say in order to penetrate to the recesses of our thinking and our attitudes and our prejudices. And so, Lord, thank you that that conviction, that holy conviction, leads us to the cross. Lord, I pray that there are some right now that your spirit is drawing out of the world and to yourself as they acknowledge their sin humbly before you and the fact that Jesus is the Savior and their Lord and they want to give their life to him. May you be glorified in these new converts as you are glorified in us who are trying to grow in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.